hope you'll take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 12. A couple of weeks ago, I was listening to a conversation on a podcast while I was folding laundry. That's what makes folding laundry enjoyable. It wasn't a serious conversation. It was actually a group of comedians. And they were talking about UFOs and aliens. Some of you thought I listened to sermons all day, huh? Anyways, it wasn't a serious conversation, obviously. They were trying to be funny, and one of them made an offhanded comment that stuck with me. He said, you know, if, if God would just come down for five minutes and hold a press conference, we could really clear a lot of things up. If we just have five minutes, we could, we could make some progress. He said it as a joke, offhanded comment, and the conversation went on, but it stuck with me. This idea that if we could just talk to God for five minutes, we could get a lot of questions answered. He wasn't wrong. But as I thought about the statement, I couldn't help but want to push back at what he said and to maybe help him consider. God did come to earth. And he came for a lot more than five minutes. And while he was here, he took questions. And it's true, there's lots of things that God hasn't told us that we want to know. But we can't suggest that he has been distant or silent. God came, lived among us, he spoke, he taught, he had conversations. He rubbed shoulders and he took questions, even hard questions, even questions that weren't sincere or honest. And that's the part of Mark we've been in over the past several weeks. Jesus in the temple courts fielding questions from the religious leaders who aren't coming with honest desire to learn, but who are coming to try and trap him. But of course, Jesus wasn't trapped. He wasn't taken off guard by their questions. And what's great for us is we have a record. God preserved his word, has given it to us. So we have a record of God on earth. We've got the transcript from the press conference. We can read how God answers the questions that were asked of him. So we come together and hear how God in flesh answers questions. And this morning we come to the last one in this series of questions. And honestly, as we think about this final question, I think if we did have the chance to ask God one question and get an answer, this one may be the closest to the type of question we would ask. Maybe your wills are turning. If you could just ask one question, what would you ask? The temptation would be ask something very specific about your life. But perhaps the wise choice would be ask a, a more broad question, right? Maybe something like this. What is the most important thing for us to do in this life? What's one thing that we should focus on more than anything else? Is there one thing that we should make our highest priority? We all have good questions. You could probably think of your own question you'd want to ask, but I think this is a good one. And it's also a question that we have answered. It was asked of Christ in Mark chapter 12, and he answered it. And this morning we get to consider, what would God say is the most important thing for us to do? 
Mark chapter 12, we'll look at verses 28 through 34 together this morning. Hope you have your Bibles open and you will follow along as I read. Hear the word of God. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that Jesus answered them well, the scribe asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. The scribe said to Jesus, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is none beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Jesus saw that the scribe answered wisely and he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Which means it was true and it was spoken and it's true today and it's for our benefit. So we're wise to consider it. May God add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word. Most of you have been with us. The setting here in Mark chapter 12 is familiar to you. It's the week leading up to the crucifixion of Christ. Jesus has been fielding questions in the court temple, the court of the temple. This morning we get this one final one. And it comes from a man who's associated with all the other people who have asked these questions. This one seems to come with a little less venom. I'm not going to suggest that his motives were pure. We don't know. But it does seem like he comes with a slightly different angle. Not necessarily seeing to trap Jesus, but maybe as a test. A test of his orthodoxy. Mark describes the scene. This scribe had heard the other conversations. Remember the Pharisees and the Herodians, they had asked Jesus if they should pay taxes. Remember that? And then the Sadducees came and asked about the resurrection of the dead. He listened, and here's what he noticed. Jesus had good answers. We see there in verse 28, he noticed that he answered them well. It seems as if his appreciation for Jesus, not his belief or his faith necessarily, but his appreciation for Jesus as a teacher of the law was rising. So now he comes with what I think is a test of orthodoxy. Let's see how true he really is. What's a scribe? Remember the scribes, these were the professional theologians. Some people refer to them as lawyers because it was their job to study and to know the law of God and to teach it to the people. And if someone had a question about the law, they would come to a scribe. It's no small job. If you've read the Torah, if you've read the law of God, you know that it's a lot to get your head around. Most of the experts of the law agreed at this time that if you went through those first five books of the Bible and listed every individual law given by God to his people, there were 613 of them. With all these commands, there was this constant effort to try to to organize them, to understand them, to put them in categories. For instance, 
365 of them were considered negative commands. So don't do this. 248 of them, positive commands. Do this. And then within each of those broader categories, they were breaking them down. And there were these categories of lighter commands and heavier commands. They would rank them. Which ones are most important? Which ones are less important? Which ones must you keep? Which ones must? Is there any wiggle room on these? These were these ongoing conversations among the scribes. And this was the inevitable question that always came up. Which one's most important? We've got 613 of them. What's number one? There was groups and some general consensus. But this was always a great question to ask a new and upcoming teacher of the law. What would you say? Perhaps seeing whose camp he falls into, right? This is the question the scribe asked Jesus. What commandment is most important of all? And again, I should say, we should be glad he asked this question. It's a good question for us to have an answer to. What's one thing we should strive to do above all else? Let's read the answer one more time. Jesus answered, verse 29, this most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, I just want to stop here. I just want to acknowledge for just a second what's actually going on right now. Up to this point, I've kind of just been going through this sermon like I would any other week, telling you about the text, telling you about the context. And yet, here's what I know. You know these verses. You've heard them. You've memorized them. In fact, if, if we went over and we started again, I said, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, and then I asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? Most of you could quote it for me, right? This isn't new. However, what I want to encourage you, encourage us in this morning is to consider the weight of what we have here. Here we have God in the flesh telling us flat out what is the most important. God forbid we dismiss this sermon too quickly because we already know the answer. Truth be told, none of you, and certainly not I, fulfilled this fully yesterday. Which means we have work to do. This is worth our consideration. We all need to take time to make sure we can do more than answer the question with our mind or with our mouth. We need to think carefully about what it means to live out this most important command. As we hear Jesus' answer, we're not surprised. And, but maybe you've never considered this, that the scribe wasn't either. This was not a surprising answer. It was a familiar answer. In fact, Jesus is quoting the Shema. Do you know what that is, the Shema? It's this Jewish statement of faith. And it's bigger than this. It comes from parts of Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy chapter 11, Numbers chapter 13. Jesus quotes the first part of it out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Shema was something that every devout Jew would recite every morning and every evening. So if you thought Jesus was saying something revolutionary, no, this was common. This was familiar. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Kids, 
grown-ups, young and old, would recite it every day, morning and evening. It's a portion of scripture they quoted and one that you can probably recite as well. But again, shouldn't we consider the question? The question's not, can you recite it? The question is, do you believe it? And do you strive to live it out? Perhaps our time would be well spent to consider more carefully what the command actually is. I think just based on what Jesus says, just in this verse, we don't go anywhere else in the scripture, we can identify at least four things to be learned about this command. And my hope is that that you can just learn these four things, but that it would help you to live it out. Because if, in fact, it is the most important thing that we should set our lives to, we should understand it, shouldn't we? I think the first thing we see is that Jesus identifies the one we are called to love, the object of our love. He says the most important commandment is this, love God. And when he says that, he's speaking about a very specific God, for lack of a better word. We see that in the text. He says this is a call to love the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the only true God. This isn't a call to love a higher power. It's not a call to love a generic God of our own imagination. This is a call to love the one and only true God. Why why make that emphasis? Well, Jesus makes it and Moses made it. It's because most people at this time were polytheistic. They worshiped many gods. But the people of Israel were unique, believing that there is one God and only one God and he is the true God. In the command of Jesus, what Jesus says is most important is love that God, love the true God. Before we talk about what it means to love him, just consider this. What I want to push us towards in this first point is that love requires knowledge, right? This isn't a a push to some generic, I love this fuzzy God. No, this is a call to love a God we can know, right? It's not a vague feeling directed to an impersonal force. It's a deep, all-consuming love for a God who can be known. The creator God, the sustainer God, the God who set aside a people for himself, who saved a people from slavery, who made promises and has kept his promises through generation after generation of unfaithful people, the one who has been faithful. We can know him. That's why I was glad to share that song with you this morning. Remember, Jesus brought you out of Egypt. It says Jesus, because that's the way Jude says it. If you've read Jude, it says that Jesus led his people out of slavery. Remember, he has sought you as his people. Remember, he has saved you from his sins. Remember him, right? Specific. And yet I think so often we don't do a proper job of loving God because we don't do a good job of remembering who he is. We allow ourselves to talk like the world does in in these vague terms about a big, general uh, God. No, no, this is a God who can be known. The question is how faithful are we in knowing him? Are you faithful day in and day out to be reminded of who he is and not by what the world would tell you, but by what God has said about himself. 
And the truth is, if you want to love him well as the command calls you to, you must know him. And as you know him, your love will grow. This is why we encourage one another to read the scriptures so we can know God, so we can hear what he has told us about himself. We should take time to meditate every day on his power. There's nothing he can't do. We need that reminder because we get halfway through the day and we think there's things that are impossible. We have to remember his presence, that he is always with us. His promises, that he's faithful. So we come to this command, the command that Jesus says is the greatest. We should start by remembering it's a call to love the one true God. To love him for who he is, which means we have to know him. That's the first thing. So we consider the command, love God. Who is he? We've got to know him. Second, Jesus talks to the way we're to love him. This is the heart of the command, verse 30. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. If you want some homework, you can go and consider that Jesus added the mind when Deuteronomy didn't include it. Just a little homework for you there. Something to consider. He's God. He, he can do that. But here's a basic question. If we're going to consider the command, something we've not answered yet. What is love? It's not an easy word or concept to define. Let me give you a, maybe a simple definition. Loving something means to delight in it. Loving God means to delight in him. It means to find pleasure in him. It means to see him as a treasure that you must not let go of. When we love God, we desire him. We give ourselves to fully to him. And I think that's the emphasis of this verse. We love him. We pursue him. We desire him. How? With all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. It's repetitive. I said it's repetitive. In English and in Greek, all these words are there. It's not love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's no, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. It's repetitive on purpose. Four different terms, all describing part of who we are. And we can go through, and there's some emphasis between each of them. For example, the heart is the center of our person, it's the source of our will and our thoughts and our actions. The soul is similar, but maybe with more emotion. Our mind has to do with our mental capacity and our intellect and our knowledge. Whereas our strength speaks to our physical ability. There's some distinctions, but I think it's best to take them as the whole. What's the point? Every part of you, everything you think, everything you feel, everything you do, is to be done in love for God. Desire him with everything you are, with what you think, with what you feel, with what you do. Treasure him with everything you think, feel, do. Live for him in your thoughts with your emotions, with your actions. Oh, actions is too general, isn't it? Love God in the way you parent. Love God in the way you work. 
love God in the way you wake up. That one's hard for me. Love God in what you think about as you fall asleep. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. It's more than a feeling. It's more than any one action. It's more than any one thought. It's more than a conformity to a particular way of life. It's everything. What does it mean to love God? It's a big question. It means to want what he wants, to desire what he desires, to live out what he commands. One thing we see over and over in the New Testament is this association between the love of God and obedience of God. Because if we desire what he desires and we want what he wants, we will live the way he says to live, right? Read 1 John. If you, if you don't know what to read this week, read 1 John. We read in chapter 5, verse 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. This is the love of God. Keep his commandments. And by the way, the one who keeps commandments out of love, John says to them, it is not burdensome. It's not a burden. It's love. Want what he wants, desire what he desires. Jesus says the greatest command, the most important thing for you to do in this life Love him with everything. Love him with every part of who you are. And when Jesus said this, the scribe wouldn't have been surprised. He's quoting something that was familiar to them. However, he goes further than maybe they expected him to go. This is where the scribe's ears may have perked up just a bit. Because first Jesus says, love God with all that you are. And then he says this in verse 31. Here's the second greatest command. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, again, not new. It's, we can read about it in Leviticus chapter 16. It's called to love your neighbor. But Jesus gives the man more than he asked for. And what we see here is Jesus helping us consider that loving God works itself out in our love for others. Now, let me be careful because I think sometimes there's this, it's confusing. Some people, we could say, and it's easy to say, how do we love God? We love God by loving others. But let us not rush past the first command too quickly. It is its own, right? We love God by loving God. But one of the ways in which we love God, and perhaps the preeminent way that we show our love for God is by loving others. We see it over and over. We see it here. There's a connection between the two. If we go to 1 John again, this time chapter 4, verse 20, we read, if anyone says, I love God, I love God, right? If anyone says that but hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he can see cannot love a God whom he has not seen. There's a connection, isn't there? If we love God the way we say we love him, then we will love others. You can say it like this. Those who keep the first commandment will also keep the second. And how well you keep the first commandment will determine how well you keep the second. And when you obey the second, you show that you're striving to keep the first. I've already said, none of us can keep the first commandment fully. 
And I think that becomes really clear when we test our obedience to the second. All of us struggle, don't we, at times, to love those around us? And what we see here is that this isn't just a superficial or a sur surface level love that we're called to. No, he says, love them as yourself. Which isn't a proof text for self-love. Jesus doesn't have to command us to love ourselves. We naturally do that. We prioritize ourselves. We look out for ourselves. We are naturally, you are, I am, naturally selfish, self-focused, and self-protecting. So the call is love others that way. Instinctively look out for them. Care for them. Protect them. We should get to a point where others are our first thought. And maybe, maybe that's not a hard command as long as we get to pick who the people are that we're called to love that way. There's people you enjoy loving. You see this command, you think of them, no problem. Except, he says, not love those of your own choosing, but love your neighbor. And in other places, he defines who neighbor is. Remember the, the parable of the Good Samaritan? Do you remember the question that initiated that parable? The question was this, Jesus, who is our neighbor? He tells the story of those who passed by this hurt, beaten man without any care. But then comes the Samaritan, the one who was an enemy of the abused, and yet he stopped and he cared for him. And Jesus ends the parable. This is Luke chapter 10. He ends the parable and he says, who then loved his neighbor? Jesus defines who our neighbor is. He says it's anyone who's in need, anyone who's hurting. And it means we go to them no matter what stands in our way, even if they're our enemy. We often love selectively, don't we? And we give ourselves credit for obeying the command because we love these people and we forget about the people who are back here. James tells us, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you really do it, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Add this to your homework, James chapter 2. We're told the story of someone who comes into a worship gathering with fine jewelry and fine clothes and is shown preferential treatment. Whereas the one comes in dressed poorly is given a seat in the back. We must love without partiality. We must love those with whom we don't agree. We must love those who don't love us. It's a high calling. And we're told that if we say we love God, we must love this way, towards others. I could transition away from this or I could ask the direct question. How well are you doing? Who is it in your life whom you struggle to live, to love? You probably have a long list of those who are easy to love and whom you love well. But how are you doing at loving those who are hard to love?
Loving those who are hurting and broken. The needy who calls often for whom you grow weary. Do you ever go out of your way to love someone you don't know? Or someone you wish you didn't know? The reality is, after this past year, COVID, quarantine, I fear we've become really good at looking out for ourselves. It's turned many of us inward. Protect self at all costs. The command is very different than that, isn't it? The command is to look out, to love others. Love God supremely, love others sincerely. Do you remember the three things so far? If we're going to love God, we have to know him. If we're going to love God, we love him with everything we are. We show our love for God in part by loving others. And then fourth, we see the supremacy of the call to love. Jesus at the beginning, he says, this is most important. And then at the end, he says this, verse 31. There is no greater commandment than these. He's reiterating the supremacy of these commands. There are none greater. But what makes these commands the greatest? It's actually pretty basic. If we obey these two commands fully, then we would never break any of the others. See, the person who loves God fully will not worship any other God before him. The one who loves God fully won't take the name of our Lord God in vain. The one who loves God fully will remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And the person who loves their neighbor as themselves will honor their father and mother, won't kill their neighbor, won't commit adultery against their neighbor, won't steal from their neighbor, won't bear false witness against their neighbor, won't covet their neighbor's wife, won't covet their neighbor's things. It's the Ten Commandments, which we're told are representative of all the other commandments. If we keep the first two fully, we will keep the ten. And if we keep the ten, we keep them all. Why are these two the greatest commandments? Because if we obey them fully, we've kept the law. Jesus says it very specifically in the same story recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. It all hangs on this. Paul understood it. He said it this way in Romans chapter 13. Owe no one anything except love for each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Don't rush past that. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Like I said earlier, things most of us know intellectually. The question is, how well do we live it out? We all know that God deserves our full allegiance, yet we are so unfaithful. We know that we're to love others sincerely, but we are so prone to selfishness. These are familiar commands for us and they were to the scribe. We see that in verse 32. Jesus has given him, he's answered the question, he's offered the greatest command and even the second. The scribe says this, you are right, teacher. 
You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself. And then he says this, it is much more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. In all the other interactions up to this point, those who were answered, asked a question and received an answer, either plotted to kill Jesus or were just left silent. The scribe's reaction is different. He says, what you've said is true. And then he goes a step further and he says something that I would have to guess made some of his friends uncomfortable. He says, you're right. In fact, to obey those commands, that is greater than all whole offerings and sacrifices. For us, it may not seem like a big statement, but living when and where he did, this would have been significant. And what it tells us is that this scribe knew the scriptures well. He knew that the prophet Hosea had said, Hosea 6.6, 6, this is the word of God, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Or maybe he was thinking of the prophet Micah, who said, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and with a calf a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly before your God. What Hosea understood, what Micah understand, stood, and what the scribe even understands is that God desires our heart more than our offerings and sacrifices. Now, did he command the offerings and sacrifices? Yeah, he did. But his aim was always the heart. The same is true today. God wants your heart. And we can make a long list of the things we should do and the things that we shouldn't do. All 613 laws. But the question is, have you given your heart? When it's all out on the table... If he has your heart, then you will do all the things that please him. And you won't consider them burdens. If you want to honor God, if you want to obey him, if you want to please him, commit yourself to loving him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And maybe you should take time this afternoon because... This will end, and then you'll go on. Or you could take time this afternoon to slow down for a minute, take out a pen and a paper, and make some notes. What does my schedule look like this week? And if anyone else sees the schedule in its fullness, what would they see? A use of time that reflects a love for God and others? Or a use of time that reflects primarily a love for self? Or maybe you would open up your credit card statement or your bank account and run through the list. Does the way you spend your money reflect a supreme love for God and a sincere love for others? Or does it primarily reflect a selfish love for self? Or maybe as you had your journal, you considered the way you interact with the church 
Does your engagement with the church reflect a love for God and others? Or does it primarily reflect a desire for what you can get? Do you show up when you need it? Or do you show up recognizing that others need you? Do you love God and others? Called to love others as yourself and you love yourself well. We're all well served to consider our hearts. Do we love God supremely? Do we love others sincerely? And yet it's one thing to know the right answer and another thing to live it out. What we see in the final verse of this passage is that the scribe knew the right answer. And yet there was more to be done. Look at verse 34. Jesus saw that the scribe had answered wisely and he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one asked Jesus any questions, and that transitions us to the next section. But let's consider what he says. You are not far from the kingdom of God, which is both an encouragement and an admonition. Right? You're moving in the right direction, but you're not there yet. See, the scribe, he saw Jesus as a good teacher, as a religious leader, but not yet as one who he needed to trust. The scribe knew the law, but the law is never enough. Which I think brings us to a good place to end a sermon on keeping the law. Because if you leave this morning thinking that your hope is found in your ability to love God and to love others, you may leave with good intentions, but leave far from the kingdom of God. Let me explain. This morning we've talked a lot about what God desires of us, and the Bible has a lot to say about what's required of you. But the primary message of the Bible is that you can never keep the law. And that all those who break the law deserve the punishment of God. So we've been given the law and called to the law. And yet we've broken it. Which is why Jesus came and it's why just four days after the conversation we just read about, Jesus allowed himself to be arrested, tried, and crucified. He died. On the third day he rose again. And he rose again so that all who can't keep the law and who deserve punishment for that, if they trust in him, repenting of their sins, you will be saved. Called to love God with all our hearts, to love our neighbors, ourselves, but you cannot do it perfectly, which means you deserve the punishment of God, but Jesus came so you can be saved. So leave this morning, church, eager to work hard. Believe knowing that you can't earn your standing before God. Jesus did that. And it's only through him that you're saved. And when you believe, we're told that you're given the spirit of God within you. And you know what the spirit does? He enables you to love God fully. He enables you to see other people and to love them even as you love yourself. He empowers us for what he's called us to. If you had the opportunity to ask just one question of God and get an answer, maybe it would be something like this. As I live the rest of my life, what is most important? What should I make a priority? What should I aim to do more than anything else? Well, it would be a good question, but you may have wasted your opportunity because the question's already been answered. We're to love him with all that we are. 
And if we do that, then everything else falls into place. Because when we love him fully, we will obey him. When we love him completely, we will love others well. When we love him fully, we will tell others about him. We, we, we cannot help but speak about those whom we love. So love him fully. And then allow that love to overflow into right living, into right speaking, into proclamation. What should we give ourselves to this week? Let's aim to love him with every part of who we are. From the rising of the sun until it sets, let the name of the Lord be on our lips. And may our love for him direct our steps, our words, and our plans.